From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Emily G. from the Center for American Progress joins us to discuss the Senate's proposed version of the bill that would overhaul the Affordable Care Act. And after that discussion, I speak with American University professor Ibram Kendi about a recent article he penned in the New York Times entitled, Sacrificing Black Lives for the American Lie. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. During the 1936 presidential campaign, where he mocked Republican desires to enacting legislation that he promoted, Franklin Roosevelt said of his counterparts, quote, We will do more of them, we will do them better, and most important of all, the doing of them will not cost anybody anything. Roosevelt's ridiculing statement bears a strong similarity to Republican desires to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. If the Senate version is any indicator, the Republican bill will not do more, as Roosevelt chided. It is questionable if it will do anything better. And the doing of them will cost some people a lot, while others much less. Joining me to discuss the Senate's version of the health care legislation is Emily G. G is a health economist at the Center for American Progress. Emily G., welcome back to the Public Morality. Thank you. Glad to be back. Now, the last time we had you on, uh, the House had just passed its version of the health care bill designed to replace the Affordable Care Act. Now that the Senate has passed its version, how do, the, do these two pieces of legislation differ? How are they similar? Sure. So the Senate now has a proposed bill, um, and they don't have a date to vote yet. But all in all, the bills are very similar. Um, In fact, we've now seen a Congressional Budget Office score that says uh, both would cut about $800 billion from Medicaid over the next decade. Um, Both would result in tens of millions of people losing coverage over the next decade. Um, And it would also make health care more expensive for people who need access to comprehensive coverage. Um, now, that, you know, that number that's been thrown around is somewhere in the neighborhood of cutting $800 billion, uh, for Medicaid. That's correct. Uh, explain, uh, uh, take us to the, the, in the woods, if you will, how, how, is, how will this be achieved? There are two big pillars of how Medicaid is cut in the bill. Um, in the Senate version and and both the House version. One mode of cuts happens through the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion. The Affordable Care Act allowed states to give Medicaid coverage to people up to 130% of 38% of the poverty level, which means that childless adults who previously didn't have access to affordable care through Medicaid can now get coverage under the program with most 
in most places, no premiums and little to no cost sharing. But the bill goes beyond repealing this ACA provision. It would actually touch traditional Medicaid as well. Uh, it would ch radically change the way that Medicaid is funded by the federal government and has been funded since its inception by moving from a, a, a format where the states get federal matching dollars for any money they spend on Medicaid to putting caps on the amount that the federal government would give any state for uh, its Medicaid program. So this means that if a state has a changing demographic, I think you know all states have um, an aging population. If a state had a crisis like uh, a boom in opi opioid uh, abuse, uh, the state would not get any additional money per person to cover that population. And so uh, with that also, I, I believe that the CBO scored there would be uh, a uh, $321 billion um, reduction in the deficit. Is that, is that how they scored it? Yeah, so in some ways, I think this is really not a bill about health care. It's a bill against health care. Uh, and the ironic thing is that it's a bill that not only cuts health care, particularly from low income and sicker and older Americans, uh, but it's also a bill that gives tax credits, uh, tax cuts to the rich. Um, there are a couple tax provisions in the bill uh, that take some of the savings and give them to people who earn well over $200,000 a year. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Emily G. from the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., about the Senate bill that was recently introduced to replace the Affordable Care Act. Now, Emily, um, since it seemed like our, our last question, we're talking about tax cuts rather than actual health care policy. Um, the, the Senate bill appears, at least to me, to be a heavier lift because unlike the House where representatives may be um, insulated within safe congressional districts, that's a different dynamic for uh, many Republican senators. Um, how do you think they'll navigate through those waters? I think that given uh, the most recent news about, um, I think it seems like McConnell might be uh, needing to delay the vote, it seems that the Senate's uh, going to be a much harder fight for the Republicans. Um, in the House, uh, Speaker Ryan was able to make Republicans walk the plank and vote for the bill. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with the nature of the differences between the two uh, congressional bodies in the House. Everybody's up for re-election in 2018. In the Senate, um, a lot of the senators won't be up for election for, um, you know, four or almost six years, um, which means they have a little more wiggle room and probably don't have to go back home and uh, make good on that promise to repeal the ACA right away. Mm. Um that said, there are also a number of senators who, you know, have very serious concerns about what the bill would do to their states. Um, the loss of Medicaid funds means a lot fewer resources to combat the opioid crisis um, and to cover um, adults, low-income adults in their state. Uh, you know, the in states that have very high costs, such as Alaska. Um, the skimpier tax credits available under the Senate bill relative to the ACA means that coverage could be outright unaffordable for a lot of middle-income people. And actually, since you, since you mentioned some, some of the challenges, I, I want to speak to some of those specifically and to sort of outline where many of these senators uh, may be fractioned. I mean, since you mentioned opi opioid, 
I mean, that's certainly uh, an issue for uh, Rob Portland of Ohio and Shelley Moore Capital of West Virginia, where they represent states with high opioid addiction. And they also, those states also have a heavy reliance on Medicaid. How, how, how do they vote for this legislation as it currently appears? I think there's, you know, there's no, I can't see, see any way that you can reconcile the needs of your state with what's in this bill. Um, you know, if you're someone who really cares about caring for your populations and um, bringing, you know, greater treatment and prevention of opioid use disorders to your communities, then uh, this is not the bill that does that. And, and then, but then again, you have another wing where uh, I would say specifically Mike Lee of Utah, Ted Cruz of Texas, who are saying the bill doesn't go far enough and they want something closer to the House version. That's correct. I, you know, in, my, in my own uh, assessment, this is a pretty darn mean bill um, that you know, takes coverage from the oldest and sickest, Amer- uh, sickest Americans. Um, but, you know, there is a wing of the Republican Party that would like to see even deeper cuts to Medicaid. Uh, right now, the uh, per capita caps I was talking about are indexed to a higher, you know, relatively high rate of uh, inflation, that is medical inflation, which means that we'll still restrictive the caps would grow um, along with health care costs. Um, Senator Lee and others are trying to advocate for even stricter caps that would grow at the rate of, um, ordinary goods like, you know, bananas and, uh, <laughs> you know, what, paper, um, and, uh, you know, would result in much deeper cuts to Medicaid funding, which in turn means even less benefits for Medicaid enrollees um, and fewer people on Medicaid rules in states. And you mentioned earlier that um, Senator uh, Mitch McConnell, Majority Senate Leader, um, has delayed the vote. So, if you, I mean, how, I mean, is there a way that you could you could possibly give, uh, say, Ted Cruz and Mike Lee what they want, and have on the other end, say, uh, Lisa Murkowski of, of Alaska and Susan Collins, who are somewhat more moderate, and give them what they vote, and still uh, have a bill that would be acceptable to Congress, I mean, to the House, when they get the conference? I know I gave you a lot there, is it, but is that all that possible? <laughs> Um, Mitch McConnell certainly got a very tough job ahead of him. Uh, it's you know hard to see how um, you know you could reconcile people who want the bill to be more generous with the needs of people who want the bill to be uh, even more um, you know the cuts to even be even more drastic. So um, I'm not sure how he does it. On the other hand, uh, we saw in the House that it, it seemed like a lot of folks were unhappy with the bill um, in the initial stages, but then. People got their token funds for this or that and end up climbing on board. So um, I don't think those who want to keep affordable health care anywhere near out of the woods yet. Well, you know, something that just struck me as we were talking, uh, again, I'm speaking with Emily G. from the Center for American Progress. Uh, repeal and replace was a political mantra that we've heard for a number of years. But health care... Uh, for more Americans has always been something, maybe with the exception of Nixon, who offered a, a, a health care coverage bill back in the 70s. But it's also, since Franklin Roosevelt, this has been a democratic issue. So I, I, I guess my question to you, if this is something that, is this something that Republicans sort of painted themselves in the corner that they have to do because of 
political posturing, but it's not really their issue or something they're really concerned with. So I think there's you know, a couple points in response to that. One is I don't think it's necessarily a democratic issue. I mean, if you look at you know in recent decades, the largest expansion of Medicare actually happened under Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Um, the Medicare Part D plan, which gave seniors access to pres- prescription drugs through the Medicare program, um, that happened under uh, the second President Bush. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't think that uh, you know Republican values and healthcare necessarily impo- opposed. Um, that said, I think you do have a lot of people who in the Senate right now who campaigned on a promise of repealing the. ACA, whether that was, um, you know, just because it sounded good and resonated with their populations or perhaps they, you know, for some reason really do believe that, um, you know, middle-class folks or low-income folks can handle plans with $6,000 deductibles, which you would have under the Senate bill. Um, but I think uh, I think a lot of the, the sentiment out at election time this past year might have been you know, misdirected at the ACA when there are, you know, uh, some problems that are persistent in our healthcare system, rising costs. Um, you know, we still have a lot of people that are insured, particularly in states that did not elect to take the Medicaid expansion. Um, but those are not problems with the a- ACA per se. Those are things that we need to continue to fix um, going forward. So with that, with that, with your previous answer, can you um – have legislation that, uh, my words, not yours, that, that begins somewhat inflexive in your posture? Can you have uh, a legislation that, that impacts so many people and sort of be somewhat on the defensive or, or, or just at least it's not the ACA kind of mentality? So I think there are some things in the bill that, that um, are well-intended that, uh, you know, this is a Republican bill and they're probably, you know, I assume ideas that Republicans are for that certainly Democrats could get behind too. So, for example, making tax credits uh, more generous for um, young Americans um, is something that, you know, I and my colleagues at CAP have previously supported. Um, I think the individual market is still a market, particularly given the types of sabotage that's come under under the Trump administration, um, is a market that's, you know, still nascent and still fragile. And um, I think money to stabilize that market through reinsurance to insurers would be helpful. Um, so I think there, there are bipartisan ideas that um, that one could find support for on both sides of the aisle, but when, the problem is that when they're packaged up with the damaging things that are in the Senate bill, um, the whole package becomes something that is not good for the health care system. And you, you mentioned uh, tax credits, uh, for Young. Explain, ex- walk us through how, 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 how that would work. What does that look like? So what the ACA tax credits do is they cap uh, the amount that an individual needs to pay for coverage um, at a certain percent of income. So, um, you know, at a given income, a person would need to pay, say, no more than 3% or 5% or 6% of their income towards coverage. If coverage costs more than that, the government would give you a tax credit to make up the difference. The difficulty in getting young people into the uh, into coverage is that a lot of them think that uh, perhaps they're invincible or they think there's, you know, a trade-off where they've never had to use the health system before, and so they don't think that it's worth spending that money to um, have insurance. Um, I think 
those of us that are a bit older realize that uh, yes, health insurance is quite you know, health care is quite expensive, and um, yes, no matter how well you take care of yourself, you will need care at some point. Um, but I think for people who haven't um, faced those kind of situations yet, they might need a little bit of enticement to join um, the healthcare pool. And those people, those healthier people, are, are critical for the system to, to somewhat uh, keep costs uh, affordable for everyone. Is that- yeah, so what insurance does is it, you know, if you and I are insuring each other, it means that if, you know, if you get sick, I'll help pay for you, and if I get sick, you'll help pay for me, and that's that's the guarantee of insurance. Um, you know, obviously, it's on a much bigger scale nationally, but um, there's no free lunch. You have to pay your premium to get uh, that guarantee of coverage later on. Uh, is it, is any way I'm asking you now finally to put your prognostication hat on? Is there any way um, to see, to see this through? What what do you think this bill will what look like when it's um, it's all said and done after, after conference if they get that far? So I think we've seen a number of rumors floating about about you know, what senators, like you mentioned, Capito and Portman earlier are looking for um, and what Lee and others on the more conservative wing of the party are looking for. Um, I think you might see things like additional money for opioids um, thrown into the bill, um, although the amount of, of money they have to play with and still uh, without violating the reconciliation rules is not nearly enough to actually uh, cover those who have opioid use disorders, but you know, they could throw some money at the problem. Um, you know, I could see some modifications to uh, the per capita cap indexing in a later version of the bill, um, but these are all changes at the margins. These would not fundamentally make the bill better or make it something that um, would overall help health care in America. If, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, it would do very little to um, uh, offset the uh, CBO projections of what is it, 22 million would would, would lose would lose their coverage or be un- uninsured within yeah. 10 years. I, I at the in fact any I think the tweaks to Medicaid that we're talking about, which is making the caps more restrictive, would only decrease the number of people covered by Medicaid and thus increase the number of people uninsured over time. Emily G. Center for American Progress, Washington, D.C., thank you for once again joining us on the Public Reality Day. Very informative. Very uh, appreciate your thoughts, ma'am. Thank you very much. That was Emily G. Stay tuned as I speak with Professor Ibram Kendi of American University about sacrificing black lives for the American lie. Welcome back. No matter how one nuances the outcome, there is no denying that Philando Castile is the latest high-profile case where a black man was killed by law enforcement under questionable circumstances only to be acquitted. What is clear, based on recent polling, there was a wide gulf between how blacks and whites view racism, justice, and equality. 
exactly is racism in the 21st century? And with all of our technological progress, is America sociologically post-racial? If so, how is that defined? Joining me to answer these questions and others is Professor Ibram Kendi. Professor Kendi teaches at American University. He is most recently the author of Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. He recently penned a powerful essay in the New York Times entitled Sacrificing Black Lives for the American Lie. And it's my honor to have this young scholar on the public morality. Professor Ibram Kendi, welcome to the public morality. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Now, I, I realize oftentimes writers have very little to do with the actual title of a piece that they pin in a newspaper. Uh, did the New York Times, in your view, accurately capture what you wanted to convey in your piece? And if so, could you explain? So I think I think they accurately captured. I think there was probably two potential titles, and I think the contrast of black death with American lies. The, the of course how I sort of end the piece referencing the the idea that both black lives and um, post-racial um, ideologies cannot both live in the United States another way to, I think titled the piece was was to say sort of why black death matters uh, to the life of the US and so there was sort of the contrast between life and lies and life um, or death um, in the life of the U.S. Well, well in, that, in, that, in that context, uh, you write, quote, the deeper answer is that black death matters. Yeah. It matters to the life of America, by which I mean the blood flow of ideas that give life to Americans' perception of their nation, unquote. What are you saying there, sir? So what I'm basically saying is that people, Americans, have a conception of their nation as a nation that is post-racial, and that this conception of their nation, this perception of their nation, really gives life to their nation. Um, you know, every nation is an idea at a fundamental level. And, and so in order for them to maintain this idea that their nation is post-racial, they have to simultaneously basically deride black life or more or less justify black death. And the way they justify black death is by constantly blaming black, black people for their own deaths. In the case of police uh, violence, constantly stating that black people are responsible for their deaths at the hands of police. Now, now does this phenomenon as you see it uh Actually, it goes back to the nation's inception through the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement, and and it's right now into the 21st century with Black Lives Matter. Is that how you see it? I do, and 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 I think that when we think of American history, I think most people may not know that slavery lived on in this country for hundreds of years because of the way it was justified. It was justified as this sort of missionary enterprise, it was then justified as this necessary evil, as Jefferson, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, sort of popularized. And then beginning in 1837, John C. Calhoun 
popularized slavery as this positive good. And so this institution wasn't inherently racist. It wasn't an institution that that was normally violent against black bodies, oftentimes leading to their deaths. It was this noble sort of institution or this necessary evil. And the same thing with Jim Crow. You know, the hot, you know, Jim Crow wasn't about equality. It was separate but equal. And so it was legal. And mass incarceration, you know, is not about uh, incarcerating black bodies and disenfranchising them and taking away their rights at, uh, you know, for jobs and other things. Oh, it, it's about incarcerating criminals who are harming black people. And so, you know, it's a noble sort of enterprise. So we're post-racial. There's no racial problem. We've solved it through mass incarceration, through Jim Crow, through slavery. That's the, that's the idea. Now, I, I can imagine someone listening right now, and they would say, you know, uh, Dr. Kendi, um, if, if these, how can you say mass incarceration is the problem? If these individuals were not committing crimes, they wouldn't be arrested, they wouldn't be incarcerated. Now, how would you respond to that question? Well, I would respond that the vast majority of people who've been mass incarcerated in this country over the last three decades have been for drug crimes. And that studies show that the racial groups sell and consume drugs at similar rates. If anything, studies show that white people are more likely to sell and consume drugs. However, black people are far more likely to be arrested and incarcerated for the selling of drugs. So I'm saying that ultimately most of the people, most of the mass incarceration has been the result of people who are in prison because of drug crimes. And most of those people have been black, and most of those people should not have been black if those police officers and judges and prosecutors were equitably sort of um, arresting whites drug dealers and consumers at the same rate that they were arresting black drug dealers and consumers. Uh, how are you defining uh, racism in the 21st century? And I, and I raise that because, you know, we will hear the term and then immediately people will will have the image of Bull Connor and his police dogs and fire hoses and then reflexively say, well, that's not me. Uh, and, and as I read your piece, that's I don't think that's what you're talking about, but I was asked, would you define Racism in 21st century context for us, please. So I, I think that one of the sort of contributions I would hope of, of my of my recent book, Stamp from the Beginning, was precisely to define racism, um, or more specifically, a racist idea. And and so I ended up defining the Bull Connors of the world people who more or less viewed black people as inferior, who were trying to segregate black people, who did not believe black people could be developed or civilized in any way, as segregationists, as having segregationist ideas. And I contrasted those people with a group of people who believed that black people were inferior, but they were capable of being civilized. And so these people went into black communities to try to civilize and develop black people, and uh, these people, of course, thought that there was problems with black-on-black -black crime and other black criminality, but they thought that black people, again, could be civilized and developed. I classify these people as assimilationists, as assimilationist ideas. And, and, and I sort of showed the, 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 the debate between segregation.
simultaneously showing that anti-racist ideas were constantly challenging both types of ideas. Anti-racist ideas stating that, no, the reason why black communities have more people who are being arrested and incarcerated is not because they're committing more crimes. It's because of racist ideas. It's because of racist policies. And actually, the racial groups are equal. Uh, and so that's really, and, and, and I, you know, to sort of further the point, what does racism look like in the 21st century? It looks actually the same way it looked in the 20th and 19th and 18th century. The way it, the way it looks is through racial disparities and inequities. And when you see racial disparities and inequities, you're, you're looking at racism. What we don't know is what's causing those disparities and inequities, what actual racist policies are causing them. And I think people assume or have been led to believe that black people are the cause of those racial disparities as opposed to the discriminatory policies that are actually creating them. So, so, so given, given that response, I, I'm, I'm going to make an assumption. Please correct me. Um, so what I hear you saying is that post-racial is simply a fanciful oxymoron. <laughs> Precisely. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, now, now I'm assuming the piece you just uh, wrote for the New York Times was prompted, at least in part, by the verdict to acquit the officer uh, who shot and killed Philando uh, Castile. How did you feel when you heard the verdict? Well, I was, I, I was, I think, upset. I was shocked, and then I was upset at myself for being shocked. And then my shock, of course, went away quite quickly. And, um, and you know, I was, of course, saddened for his family. And I was saddened for, I think, presumably the cynicism that could, that could grow sort of as a result of, of, of this verdict. Uh, but, of course, I was most appalled by yet another jury looking at the facts and having somehow being able to acquit. And I think trying to get in the minds of the jurors or get in the minds of Americans who are defending those jurors, I think is sort of what led me down to writing this piece. Because I think that's one of the things that people were scratching their heads about. Like, how could, you know, uh, a thinking people look at the facts of this case and somehow rule that this officer did nothing wrong? Uh, you know, I, I think that one of the differences is something that that, that, that um, came out. And I actually think that you wrote about it in your piece. Uh, it's how um, have I've, I've observed how black blacks and whites see the same matters very very differently. I mean, one of the things uh, that you noted and was also noted elsewhere that Philando Castile had been stopped forty nine times by the police in thirteen years. Mm-hmm. Now, my friends who are white tend to have, and this is this is non-scientific, but they tend to have two reactions, either shock and dismay or some sort of rationalization that no one has stopped that many times unless they're up to something. Yep. And meanwhile, my black friends treat it as if I said, you know, uh, pass the salt. I mean, it's, 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 it's offer a critique on those two divergent reactions, if you would. Well, again, I think it's based on their assumptions. And this is really what I was trying to sort of get at in in the New York Times piece. Like, if you have been led to believe that we're in a a post-racial society, and which means that discrimination is no more, which means 
for some people, discrimination is very, very negligent. Then, then what that means is when you're thrust with these, this type of data, you know, about a black person being stopped so regularly, or even the disparity of, of young black males being uh, nine times more likely to be killed by the police than, than everyone else in 2016, it can't, the answer can't be, the explanation, rationalization cannot be racial discrimination. So what that then causes you to do is figure out, okay, what did these young black males do wrong? What did Castile do wrong? Because it must be that. It cannot be racial discrimination. And, 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 and so I think that that is what causes these people to end up trying to figure out a way to blame the unblameable. And in the way that black people or more anti-racist people are not, because they recognize the existence of racial discrimination. So that certainly is in their bag of, of rationales for these types of events. Uh, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with American University professor and author, uh, uh, Professor Ibram Kendi. Uh, professor Kendi, in the court of public opinion, justice is often defined by an outcome or and if that outcome doesn't happen it was injustice I, I you know we can go right down the line and um, whether it's Emmett Till Rodney King or, or the latest uh, Philando Castile but if that outcome is not reached and the verdict is not justice given the number of high-profile cases when black men have been shot by law enforcement do you feel confident that the verdict alone will determine whether or not justice has been achieved? Is there something larger that needs to be addressed here? Oh, I, I mean, I I think that at least I've wrote, I think that justice can be achieved in the streets through protest. And I think that's one of the things that actually has happened over the last few years with these verdicts. Uh, you know, basically going the wrong way. So people, of course, took justice sort of into their own hands and, and showed uh, the nation, showed their, their local community that, you know, who they thought was guilty by their own sort of activism. So that, I think that's certainly something that has happened, and we should certainly not discount uh, people's justice if, if that's what that is. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I'm not sure whether the families look at it in that way, right? I don't, I don't know whether they. I'm sure they are probably heartened, you know, by the outward show of sort of activism and outrage that people have. But you know, really, what it comes to is the family. Now, and the larger issue is, you know, a cop, uh, the you know Castile's uh, killer could have been convicted. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to be saying the name, you know, of another uh, woman or man who was, who was shot by the police a week later. And, and so really, you know, there's individual justice and there's more systemic justice. And, and so I think, you know, many people are advocating for both, and many people really want there to be systemic justice in which policies and procedures are changed to ensure that this type of things never happen again. One of the things about the Philando Castile case that, that I heard, I'm, I'm sure in your work you probably heard the same thing, like as if this was different because it the uh, police officer was not white per se, so that upsets the black-white paradigm. H how do you address that? Well, actually, I mean, again, in, in Stanford in the beginning, uh, my sort of 
paradigm is not black-white as much as it's, it's racist and anti-racist. And, and I think within the black community in particular, there has been a long sort of history of black cops abusing and, and killing uh, black bodies because they thought black people were dangerous and, and brutalizing black people. And, you know, this, of course, has shown up on, um, in popular culture and movies like Boys in the Hood and others, these sort of very vicious sort of anti-black, black cops. And, of course, this emerged with the Zimmerman case, who, of course, is probably the most prominent um, uh, sort of taker of a black life, who, of course, was, was Hispanic. And so I think, I think one of the things, and then, of course, the cop in Charlotte was another cop who was black. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that, that people, I think, hopefully are recognizing that this, not, this really is not an issue of necessarily black and white as much as an issue of racist and anti-racist, and that we need cops who look out, who are anti-racist, and who see black and white, you know, as similar. They don't see one as more dangerous than the other based on a series of misleading statistics and outright lies. Uh, I want to return to your piece uh, for a moment. You, you, You raised the question, quote, is black death the cost of maintaining the myth of a just, uh, meritorious America. And then you come back and you answer the question, this is not just uh, the America uh, people perceive, this is the America people seem to love. So my question to you, sir, is in that, in that context, when you say America, who, who are you to, who's America in that case? Well, I'm referring to the people who have, who love an exceptional, meritorious, post-racial, just, America. And when I say the people, I mean, this isn't just the people who were clapping for the verdict um, the other week. But these are even some of the people who were unsure about the verdict, people who would say that, yes, America's ideals are meritorious, are equality, are, you know, justice. However, of course, America is not living up to those ideals. And so there's a large swath, I think, of Americans, Democrat and Republican, who, who, who view their America as a fundamentally just, egalitarian nation that, of course, at times, if not many times, have, have gone awry, and, and certainly they would say has gone awry in this situation. And, and what I'm arguing is in order for people to imagine America through as this just, meritorious, egalitarian nation, they have to separate uh, the reality sort of or distinguish or not or overlook the actual reality on the ground. Uh, And I think that reality on the ground does not speak of a nation that has those ideals. Well, that also speaks to the the, uh, Pew study that that, that you cited in your piece where you where whites and blacks largely see racism uh, and justice in a very, very different context, does it not? Yes. Yeah, and, and, and so you, you have, I think I, I cited that this, about 38% of white Americans, uh, according to a Pew study, believe that there's no more racial work for their country to do, that, you know, the racial problem is solved. I mean, people a century ago thought that the Negro problem was solved through uh v. Ferguson. But 100 years before that, they thought that the slavery problem was being solved by either colonizing black people abroad 
or, quote, civilizing them in slavery. And so, you know, they, of course, Americans historically have been led to believe, even though you've had, you know, millions of black people in prison or millions of black people segregated in, in, in the poorest sides of town or millions of black people enslaved, that their nation does not have a racial problem. Uh, given the, 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 the context of this conversation that we're having, and um, as you, you mentioned earlier, that um, your project is not one that sees it between black and white, but but racist and anti-racist. So in, in that context, someone who may not be black or white, how, how should they be listening to, to not only this conversation, your, your piece in New York Times and, and your books that you've written on this subject? Well, I think that, I think that people should aspire, no matter their racial group, to be anti-racist. And, and what, what it means to be an anti-racist is to believe, or even, you don't even have to believe it, see all of the studies that prove that the racial groups are equal, that black people are not genetically inferior or distinct from Latino people or Native American people or white people or Asian people, that, that so, so from a genetic standpoint, really there's only the human race. And anti-racists also believe that there are many different cultures, you know, of people across the world, and those cultures are very different, but we should not be judging one culture as superior to another. Uh, and that even behaviorally, that, you know, racists have never been able to prove that black people are more lazy, that black people are more hypersexual, that black people are less likely to care about education and loving and all these other things. I mean, there's a bunch of theories, there's a bunch of anecdotes, but people have never been able to prove that. So, you know, for anti-racists to, you know, no matter their racial group, you know, to, to, to seek to be anti-racist. And when you become an anti-racist, or when you start being, I should say, an anti-racist, you look out at these disparities, these racial disparities in our society, these court cases, and you don't see what's wrong with people. You see what's wrong with policies. You see what's wrong with systems. You see what's wrong with institutions. Because there's nothing wrong with the people, the anti-racists believe. And I think, you know, if more Americans were able to take on a more anti-racist mentality, then I think we could, of course, bring about some real change in this country. Well, you sort of, you sort of touched on uh, my, my next question because simply because – and. I think you and I would agree that, that, that homophobia still exists, misogyny still exists. Um, I just saw um, uh, an article today that said that, um, I mean, there's, but there's a tremendous growth in support for same-gender marriage. But, 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 but what I hear you saying is that this phenomenon of racism in, in, in its myriad forms started with the inception of the country, and it, con and it continues – regardless of the stats. So how does this play out for us? I'm letting you put the prognosticator hat on it and tell us how this plays out. Well, I mean, I think it's going to play out based on what what people do. I mean, you know, if, if I think the reason why the post-racial idea is so popular is because it's so sophisticated, because it's led so many Americans, even well-meaning Americans, to think that racism is over. And once you think something is over, how are you, you, you know, you're not going to see it, let alone have the capacity to challenge it. 
And so that's why I emphasized how important it is for us to kill the post-racial myth. Because once we kill that post-racial myth, then people can start actually seeing the country for what it is. And that's a country where, where racist policies are pervasive. And then we start to figure out, okay, what are these policies that are actually creating these inequalities? And then, of course, we formulate campaigns and movements against these policies. But, you know, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is it's really going to determine, it's really based on what the people are going to do. I think it's extremely encouraging that so many people came out against the Castillo case, that were coming on the back end of, 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 of Black Lives Matter, that more and more Americans seem to have opened their eyes to the country after the election of the 45th president. And so, but will these people, will we, of course, formulate a movement, a movement that seizes power and, and through that power is able to sort of uh, change these racist policies. Before we let you go, I, I would like for you, if you could, to talk briefly about your new endeavors at American University, which include being the director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center. So you know I was going to put you on the spot like that. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I think through writing stamp from the beginning and, and realizing that as I sort of my central thesis of this book and finding is that really racist policies are really the driving force of racist ideas. In other words, people are creating racist ideas to justify existing racist policies that benefit them. And we've seen this in our in recent years in which in which the Republican Party recognizing that the demographic shifts and even ideological changes of the country were turning against them. So they went about initiating all of these voter ID laws to suppress uh, voters who they don't think are going to vote for them, namely black people and young people. And, and then they created a justification. They created an idea, an idea of voter fraud to justify that policy. And, and, and of course, that policy benefited them. So really, that's the history that I tell in Stamp from the Beginning, racist ideas being created to justify racist policies. So what that means is that really if we really want to get rid of racist ideas, we really have to uncover and get rid of and challenge racist policies. And so that then led me down the road personally to want to become engaged in researching and uncovering and, and advocating against uh, racist policies in really every sector of society. And, and that's sort of the mission, or that will be the mission of the new Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. I'm hoping to be able to bring some of the finest researchers in the world to, to D.C. to study many of these policies, to, to figure new ways that, or new anti-racist ways to eliminate uh, inequality in this country and really around the world. American University professor and author, uh, Ibram Kendi, thank you, sir, for joining us today on The Public Morality. We much appreciated it. Oh, you're welcome. Well, um, thank you for, for the invitation. I, of course, enjoyed speaking to you. Thank you. That was Professor Ibram Kendi. Stay tuned for my closing remarks.